Ken Campbell, The Seekers Podcast. Welcome to Ken Campbell, the Seekers podcast, hosted by me, Daisy Campbell, Ken's daughter, and David Bramwell. Ken Campbell was one of a kind, an unconventional performer, wordsmith, theatre director, comedian, trickster, and creative powerhouse. For this unique series, we'll be plundering Ken's archive to bring you the best recordings of his one-man shows, as well as other selected treats. So, Daisy, we're at episode three, and we're going to be hearing Pig Spurts. Can you tell us a bit about that show? Yes, yeah. This is, I would say, his most autobiographical of uh, of all the one-man shows. It's my personal favourite, I have to say. I was living with him when he was writing this, and I remember all the cross-dressing and the, um, and the the various madness that went with putting together this particular show. Yeah, well, I guess listeners will, lo- will lose out on the cross-dressing element of the show, which was hilarious. It was, yeah. I've only just got rid of his weird rotting breasts, actually. Um... It's not something you hear every day, is <laughs> no, it? No, it's not. <laughs> Talk, particularly talking about your father. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> it was my favourite show as well, actually, it, and it was my first introduction to to, to Ken and introduced to, to the idea of someone who could get on stage and be a, a fantastic storyteller with very few props. Yes, definitely. Although this one is a little bit more prop heavy. So if there's sort of moments which are a bit more visual, uh, what we've done with the recording is we've got Jeremy Stockwell um, invoking Ken just to tell us, the listeners at home, what he's actually getting up to with his props at that moment. And so without further ado, Pig Spurt, part one. Kenneth Campbell, Geary School, Barkingside, Ilford, Essex, England, Great Britain, near Europe, the world... Uh, the solar system, the universe, something rather like that would be what it was that I wrote on my school diary when I was six and three quarters. This was uh, in case the thing got lost in space. Now, and my, and my first brush with show business was at Geary's school uh, because we were, uh, we were born in the war, you see. We didn't, have, um, we didn't have toys, not many of them, not unless you had a handy father. And on a Friday afternoon, uh, would be showtime, you see. And if you had got a toy, you could bring it along and you'd show it to the other poor kids who hadn't got one, you see. One afternoon, you know, I brought my toy, but it was cancelled. Miss O'Haran's class was put together with the other class of um, our, our year, Mrs Den's class. The subject was God. Uh, did you know that uh, we're, we're, when we're born, we're all given a bit of God? The Almighty is good enough to give us all a bit of himself. Um, and, the, and your God is situated somewhere in the stomach region. And every time you do anything a little bit naughty, like tell a lie, apparently writing a lie is even worse. You get a little bit of dirty in your God. There had been cases um, uh, recently then of um, fellows applying for entrance up there at the pearly gates and their gods had been filthy. There had been cases of, um, of guys whose gods had been completely eaten away. Yes, Janet. Question from Janet Dean at the back. Do you mean Germans, Miss O'Halloran? Very good, Janet, yes. Recently, <laughs> recently the people applying for entrance there were completely eaten away. Gods had been Germans and a few Japanese. Listen, Mrs. Den, Mrs. Den is going to be most upset indeed, because she's going to get there before us, see? She's going to be most upset indeed of any of our year. 
and start trying to get in up there with completely eaten away gods. Now, to, to, to help us, uh, to help us with, uh, wrestle with this concept, are now handed round autopsy liver photographs. <laughs> First of all, the, um, the photograph of the liver of a, of a terminal alcoholic, uh, which we are to compare with the liver of a healthy living person. But it seems that like, even, you know, even, this, uh, even this one presumably has been sprung from the dead. It's really quite a striking afternoon. Yes, Janet. Uh, and, um, Janet wants to know, is there any way you can, you can clean up your god? <laughs> yes, Janet, we're glad you asked that. Yes, of course there is, yes. If you do two good things for every one bad thing, two to one is the ratio you can clean up your god. <laughs> and also slippery. Slippery in the back of your leg like battery. That'll, that'll get it down a bit, but you're still going to have to do one good thing. Yes, um, Peter. Peter Sarbuck with a question. Peter wants to know, can you meet God without dying? Yes, Peter, you can. But it will be in the most unlikely place. Now this uh, led to um, <laughs> quite a lot of conjecture in the playground as to where that, where the most unlikely place would be. I mean, sure we could think of pretty unlikely places, very unlikely places, but it seems, if you could think of it, it's going to be even more, it's going to be even more unlikely than that. Cut, wow. Anyway, every, um, every morning um, you, you, we had to write up our diary, you know, anything that had happened to us had to be written up. Uh, and uh, if anything uh, spectacular had happened to you, maybe you're going to get the honour of reading it out to Miss O'Halloran and the class. And I used to like to go for that honour. Uh, but, but, but very often it meant lying in my diary, you see. And so it was, I had the, uh, the dubious glory. And then as I, went, I went back to my desk, I, I could feel... Uh, I could feel the dirtiness eating into my god. And uh, uh, I, I managed to get on, to, on a sort of one-to-one -one with, with the fella. I, I said, well, it's, it's, it's all right, actually, sir, because I, I won't be doing that ever again, you see, uh, lying in my diary. So, um, and anyway, and I'll be doing two good things for it anyway, so that's all right, isn't it? And I'll be, do oh, and I'll be doing two good things for yesterday's as well. So, it's, 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 maybe, maybe really what I ought to do is make a full confession of everything. You know? Request! A programme of slippering, you know? Get the odds down, be able to get in up there. Wow. And I wrote, um, I wrote a little poem at this time which went, My diary is a liary, a diary of lies. My God, all dirty diary. In heaven for me, no pies. And, and, <laughs> and even to this day, if I, if I repeat over and over again, like a, like a mantra, no pies, no pies, no pies for you, Kenneth. No pies. I can get the tears streaming down my face. <clears throat> well, it was about six months after this episode, uh, a new boy was uh, plonked into the school. In fact, he was plonked right next to me. His name was Derek, and um, we became best friends. Uh, one, but uh, one, uh, one uh, break, I unburdened myself to Derek uh, about all the lying I'd been doing in my diary, you see. Anyway, but Derek, mind you, Derek, Derek had not had the, had not had the um, advantage of autopsy liver photos. <laughs> Derek said, not to worry, he said, don't worry, not to worry, he said, because there's no such thing as God. He said, and anyway, he's stupid. And uh, sometimes, sometimes I felt that Derek had uh, maybe three quarters convinced me. Sometimes I could be almost as happy, breezy as Derek. <laughs> Sad to relate, when Derek was 11, his mother, a devout Methodist, chopped him to bits. Some bits weren't found. 
And the Ilford recorder, who covered, covered all the sensational aspects of this case in every detail, didn't tell us, maybe they didn't know, whether or not this was down to a theological altercation. <laughs> Why, man, I saw Bassanio under sail. With him is Graziano gone along. Uh, rather, rather afternoon attempt there. Uh, Seekers had an impression of the, of the late Stuart Pierce. Uh, when I left the, uh, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in 1960, after a lot of letters, they eventually let me in at the Colchester Repertatory Company, so-called. This, um, this is a weekly, weekly rep place. I was singing on uh, a new play every week there, and undoubtedly king of the place uh, was Stuart Pierce. Uh, Stuart Pierce was possibly the last in the fine line of actor laddies. Uh, this means you walk around, you, you uh, affect a silver-topped cane. And he would greet such as me as uh, with, uh, Hello, dear boy. Uh, Stuart Pierce had toured in the war years with Todd Slaughter's melodrama company. <laughs> and he styled himself an eccentric character actor. And this means that you, uh, you give all your many, your varied, um, extraordinary performances through your nose. <laughs> and Stuart Pierce, Stuart Pierce, it was like his piercer was his nose. An extraordinary, prying, poking, cutting organ. <laughs> Indeed, it was Stuart's pride that by the Friday, as I say, these shows only lasted a week, that by the Friday, he would, he would manage it so that he would touch his nose upon the nose of an acting colleague. How did he do this? With, what, with justification? Well, it was uh, justified really by his extraordinary mannered, baroque, gothic uh, form of acting. Fantastic, um, uh, towards, um, at the end of, uh, towards the end of uh, his part in a thriller. And so, um, a knife. Mm. I just want to point out, it, it led, there was a lot of tension on stage, if you were on stage with Stuart, especially in the earlier part of the week, you know. Mm. As, as, the, uh, as the nose was seeking out its Friday quarry. Can it be me? Anyway, this thriller I wanted to tell you about. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, a knife in the back is not what we call a normal death car stairs. He got it, but he slightly missed his nose. Carstairs had his face, he cut him. He cut Carstairs with his nose. He said, for you, you Carstairs, it is thee. And he spelt it out with his nose. E N D. Christ. And God Stuart went, how had he done it, man? You know? I mean, what I mean, I mean, you know, had he. How had he done that cut on the cheek? I mean, had he secreted a, a small bit of razor blade in his nose? <laughs> or he secretly squashed a blood capsule and snotted it at him? <laughs> <laughs> no. Mm. Yes, yeah, when, uh, when Stuart uh, left, uh, left Colchester for better things at the Penguin Players, for me, really, um, <laughs> the, the place was sort of a wee bit empty, a wee bit dead, but I hung on, I hung on there, I say, I say grandly. I said, nobody else wanted me anyway. I was, I was glad I was there because, um, come the pantomime, we had Hugh Hastings playing the piano. Uh, Hugh Hastings, I mean, he was a name in those days, Hugh Hastings. Hugh Hastings had uh, written a, a hit naval comedy called Seagulls Over Sorrento. It had starred uh, Ronald Shiner when it was in the West End, but by this time, I think nobody much was doing it. I think it was 
just being done in prisons. And so um, uh, Hugh was uh, reduced to playing the piano for the Colchester Repertory Panto. Anyway, I was having, um, I was having a drink in the um, pub one lunchtime with, uh, with Hugh. And Hugh started uh, talking about his acting career. And uh, well, I, I didn't know he had one. <laughs> but the interesting thing was uh, that Hugh was only interested in playing third act detective inspectors in thrillers. <laughs> that, wow, I mean, it's, I mean it's, to me it was the sort of part you might get lumbered with, but you know, to have it as a goal in life, <laughs> being quite, quite weird. Oh no, no, says Hugh. He yeah. says a third act detective inspector, he said that's the nearest equivalent, you know, that we have today to the, uh, the great old tradition of deus ex machina. To understand the concept of deus ex machina, you've got to be prepared to go travelling back in time. You've got to get back there to the ancient Greeks. Evidently Euripides, Sophocles and co. If they, got their, if they got their plots to such a pass that they couldn't logically resolve them, it would be time to winch down the deus ex machina. The deus being the god and the machina, this thing, you clank him down, then he'd come down. And, and the god, you see, with his magic, he'd be able to put things, he'd put things to rights, things back in harmony. Hugh says, well, isn't that how it goes with your third act detective inspector. <laughs> you've got two and a half acts of human beings fucking up and then boom, the inspector calls, you know? <laughs> with, his, with his magic of a sort, he puts things, uh, puts things back on balance. No, said Hugh. He said to me, man, he said, uh, a third act detective inspector is a theophany. <laughs> Later that evening. <laughs> Theophany, a manifestation of a deity to man in a form that, though visible, is not necessarily material. No, says Hugh, with a third act detective inspector, you can romp away with the thunder with the glory of any thriller if you know the secret. I, I said, oh, I'll, I'll see, here's, a, here's another point here. Um, What's, what's, the, what's the secret then of being a third act detective inspector? Well, I said, you. He said, first of all, you've got to learn the lines. Well, no, I, I, this was uh, the revolutionary talk in those days because uh, <laughs> a, third, a third act detective inspector, you always play that with a notebook, you see. You have all your lines written in the notebook. Where were you on the night of the, the 14th and that sort of thing? Hugh says, don't even have, don't even have a notebook. And then this is the big one. And then look for clues. For me, it was sort of minutes on the clock, really, until, I mean, it must come sometime. They're going to give me a third act detective inspector, surely. And yeah, and it came. The drama to be, signpost to murder by Monty Doyle, me to play Inspector Bickford, coming on classically halfway through Act 3. We had a new leading man that week, a fellow called Ted Webster, the lead being that of a lunatic, an escaped and very dangerous lunatic from the lunatic asylum. He bursts in on this lone woman in her country house. He begins to molest, maraud her, then it begins to transform just maybe she's pottier and ghastlier than he is. Third act detective inspector, you, um, in Colchester in those days, you just had two mornings rehearsal. At the first rehearsal, lovely old geezer, Bernard Kelly directed, so he's like out there in the stalls looking, looking at me. He's, he looked up over his half glasses. He said, uh, you're, not, you're not using a notebook then, Ken? I said, uh, no, Bernard, I thought I'd learn the lines. 
and he gave this sort of whoop, ducky look around the place. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, well, I mean, since that has so phased him, I thought, well, I don't think I'll look for clues at the rehearsal. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't want to get it cut till I tested it out, you see. And, but I was looking around the sort of places you might look for clues come the opening night. Uh, in fact, I, in fact, I got plans of slipping a few meaningful clues under things. Uh, anyway, come the opening night and the, um, the Monday, you see, and um, the, first, the first two and a half acts had gone what Ted Webster and Margaret Thing, the leading lady, would have called well. By well, they would have meant uh, that there would have not been a chuckle, not a titter from the house, therefore, the good people of Colchester must be utterly entrapped, utterly entwined, enchanted by Monty Doyle's desperate plotting. Then uh, enter Inspector Bickford, starts looking for clues. And the whole place went up. It was like a, a wondrous wall of laughter, like a solid sheet of laughter. <laughs> and sitting, sitting in the front row was the Bishop of Colchester. He went, oh, 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 this is going well. I must, remember, <laughs> I must remember to drop a postcard to Hugh, tell him how well it's gone. And then um, at, 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 the, at the bowing, thunderous applause. I, mean, I assume that probably two thirds of it was down to me. And then, uh, but then the metal door of my changing hutch was rudely passed open. And there was Ted Webster, he put on a kilt for this event. And he took the fire bucket off the wall full of old greasy water, probably been there 30 years. And he slung it over me. And you had to pay for your own clothes for shows in those days. And he threw the bucket at my head. <laughs> and he said, it's your life if you try that tomorrow. <laughs> I said, wow, thank you, thank you. Thank you for the note, Ted. <laughs> <laughs> The next night I, um, I didn't look for clues, <laughs> but for some reason this was funnier. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a point where I have to come over to, uh, to Ted and say, excuse me sir, but is this your cigarette lighter? And Ted, the pupils of his eyes were going, <laughs> he said, Yes, it is, you funny little man. <laughs> Shit, well, at, at, at the bowing that night, at the last bow, I sailed off the stage and I, I beat the audience out of the auditorium doors and I was around the corner to a little pub that, uh, that the company never used. But there, eventually, to be found by the director, Bernard Kelly, he said, for Christ's sake, he said, don't come in tomorrow, Kenny. He said, he said, just come in a few minutes before your entrance and get out fast before the bowing. He said, he said, he said oh, it's Ted Webster, he's going to kill you, you know. I said, oh, shit, he said, and the bishop's coming again tomorrow. I said, oh, no. I mean, that really wasn't on. The bishop? The bishop coming a second time to a thriller. I mean, the bishop used to come to the first night of everything, and then if, if it was a comedy, if it was a farce, he'd come every night. Uh, except for Friday when he ran the jazz club. Yeah. Yeah. On, the, on, on the first night, he'd be able to um, he'd be able to spot out where all the laughs were, and on subsequent uh, performances, he'd always have a, a couple of cubs with him. So, uh, he'd sit there in the front row sit, uh, with his cubs. the younger members of the scout movement along with their comedy timing. And... <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said, I said, I said, Bernard, I said, is there any way, is there any way you can stop an audience laughing? You know, shut them up. 
Bernard said, Bernard said that he said, there's only one surefire technique for that, he said. He said, what you'd have to do, he said, uh, you'd, have to, uh, you'd have to come in, and, he said, and you'd have to forget your lines. He said, then uh, wait till you're satisfied that the, uh, the voice of the prompter has run round the hall. <laughs> he said, um, yes, that's what I did. I came on um, and, uh, and tried, you see. And I waited for the, um, the voice of the prompter to ring round. And, and the house was as good as gold. Uh, to be sure, it, 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 it was sad seeing the pale white knees of the, the cubs in the front row. Uh, untouched by holy hand, <laughs> Sodom, and, and uh, that's, what, that's what I did for the rest of the, the rest of the run. I came on, forgot my lines, waited till the uh, the uh, prompter's voice had rung round, and, uh, and got on with it. And um, at, at the end of the run, the, the leading lady, Margaret, whatever her name was, came up to me and she said, "I just want to congratulate you on your performance, Kenneth." She said, "She said we were all so worried about it at the beginning of the week, and then from somewhere, you found such strength." Thank you, I said, humbly, thinking, asshole. <laughs> there, um, there is a footnote to add on the, uh, on the Bishop of Colchester. It seems that in his concluding years he wasn't changing his underpants. Simply, as one underpant disintegrated, he would put on another. We deduce this, Watson, by the fact that when he died, round the body were found eight Eight elasticated bands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't, I, you couldn't help me imagine. Imagine like, he'd be boom, boom, <laughs> getting in up there in heaven. He'd be able to play this thing like some sort of harp bass. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I mean, that was into jazz. He was a real, he was a jazz fiend. Uh, ah, Captain, uh, Captain Charlie Charrington. Um, it was this way that I first encountered the captain. I was, um, when I was at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, there was um, a lady student there, and I had designs on her donut. <laughs> she, um, she, was, uh, she was the daughter of some uh, um, handsome Indian doctor lady and some British chap, and she had heavy black hair, which she, uh, D, her name was, D. Charrington, and she chose to do this um, up in a, in, a, in a sort of bun arrangement on the top of her head, on the, into a donut ring, you see. And when the, um, when the classes were a, budge up, when the classes were, were a wee bit tedious, I find myself uh, a sort of uh, transfixed, you know, by the uh, D. Charrington's donut ring of hair, you know. <laughs> and um, I, I couldn't help it, but uh, playful fantasies used to pass through, but sometimes really quite rabid fantasies, uh, most alarming of which maybe was the viciously sharpened shears scenario, you know what I mean? And I thought of uh, stalking D. Charrington through the corridors of Radar with my shears, you know, coming up behind, zip I never, I never, I never said, uh, told her anything about this, of course, although I didn't mention it to anyone, but I suppose she must have seen me looking her way in a sort of interested way. And, and this sparked up a bit of a friendship, so it was me she asked if I'd like to go with her to meet her father. And this was more curious than it sounds because she'd never met her father. I mean, possibly she'd been viewed by him a couple of times as a toddler. She didn't know, but anyway, the fellow was to be appearing in the pub round the corner that lunchtime, so... Yeah, and I, I went with her. Now... I had always regarded the bowler hat as possibly the, the pinnacle of burkery, 
<laughs> but not actually as it sat on the head of Captain Charlie Charrington. Uh, to be sure, I think his bowler hat may have been a wee bit curly of brim, a wee bit snapped down at the back. But this was 1959, it was to be some years before Steed of the Avengers on the telly. He's going to have one of these things. And, um, and uh, the captain, Captain Charlie Charrington, exuded uh, a brand of dash and panache, really. And um, his daughter, Dee, I think it was a wee, wee bit nervous, and she was now powdering her nose for the second time. And I was 19, and I turned to the captain, and I said, oh, so uh, what do you do now then, sir? And Captain Charlie Charrington, with his twinky eyes, he took my hand and he put it inside his jacket. And I felt his gun. And I think it was the captain's gun which fired my passion. And I began to uh, woo the captain's daughter in earnest now, you see, in her entirety. Uh, you know, I mean, it wasn't just the donut ring he was after now. But um, sad, sad to uh, relate, she chose to marry another geezer and go with him to Canada taking her mother and her brother with her, blah, which is mine for eight years passed by. Eight years later, I was, um, I was attempting to write comedy sketches for the radio, a programme, um, you look too young to remember, uh, called Monday Night at Home. And uh, I thought that the, home, uh, the ideal home exhibition was on at Olympia. I said, give us a ticket for, for that. I'll see if I can write something funny about that. Once into um, Olympia, I was stuck by this one stall, transfixed by it. Uh, not, it wasn't the stall, actually, it was, it was the pitcher, the salesman. He was mesmeric, but all he was selling was sores. But they weren't sores of the usual variety. These were sort of like string, really, with a little sort of handle at each end. And, and the, the idea being you throw one end over an overhanging bough, say, and it goes, boom. Yeah, but that wasn't the only use of these things. For example, the Gurkhas could take off a man's head in one with them. They used to practice a lot on goats. And the thing was, he was unloading these things, you know, like there was uh, no tomorrow. You couldn't believe that, that um, everyone uh, had an overhanging bowel problem or, or you know, was, uh, were goat breeders with antisocial fantasies. Or, yeah. And there was an Indian gentleman there. He didn't know whether he wanted one or not. And my new hero uh, addressed him in a, an extremely foreign tongue. He went, the Indian fellow looked blank. He tried him with another one, though. The fellow still looked blank. But on the third one, he got him. And the chap went off with eight. <laughs> and then he saw me, the salesman. The seller of saws saw me. He turned to his assistant. He said, uh, we're closing for ten minutes. You, he said, are coming with me. And I followed him, I followed him out through the doors. No exit doors into a darkened corridor. And then through doors which said, no admittance. And then quite simply, we were, in, we were in the exhibitor's canteen and he uh, parked me at a table and he was off and he was getting a pot of tea for two and a couple of chocolate eclairs. And he sat down with me and he said, How's Dee? I said, oh, cool, it's Captain Charlie Charrington selling sores. Oh! I said, well, I don't know, I don't know. I said, you, you know she got married, she got married, she went to Canada years ago. Yes, he had vaguely heard about that. Listen, he'd not seen us since that lunchtime in the pub. I said, oh, well, anyway, I was able to fill out his ten minutes with some images of his splendid daughter. But then, given the fact that we, that we discussed the marriage and everything, I was surprised by this last remark of his. He said, um, look after my D, won't you? I said, yes, sir, I will. 
la 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 right and then all of a sudden it was 1972 and i don't mean uh, 1972 in general and i mean it was that specific sunday when i was supposed to be going to munich but uh, i'd missed the first train boat train connection due to some fast in dave hill's kitchen the night before <laughs> but i seem to be doing nothing about catching the lunchtime one either in any event what was i doing why did i have to go to munich um, the thing was, in those, at that time, 1972, um, I had this touring comedy outfit of my own. Sometimes I get called the grandfather of alternative comedy. I, I, I let it go. Actually, I hope not. Alternative comedy now seems to me that they're, they're sort of... The jokes are quite commendably dirty, but for anything else, it seems that they have to submit their gags six months before to Greenpeace or something. <laughs> <laughs> Ours was not like that. We, look, we were into this style of stuff. In those programmes, you see some odd images of it. Look, we're into this style of humour. Hammering nails into your head. Shoving live ferrets down your trousers. This style, style of stuff. Anyway, we were... Um, the reason... <laughs> Munich was we were... Um, they were about to start a... Um, a um, three-week, a three-week residency in Munich's uh, legendary "fuck the hell" bar, and um, mind you, it was largely looking after itself just at that period. But I'd agreed to go over there. Oh, for the ferret! Because I mean, the ferret would be on a one-way ticket now. I mean, due to the rabies laws, you know, they encourage you to get them out of here, but they don't want them back. And um, so I know my, my job to find some crowd who'd look after the ferret at the end of the run, and uh, and also I'd train them up in a, a new routine. I say new routine, in fact, I pinched it from Abbott and Costello. It's their baseball routine that they call Who's On First Base? But I translated it into, uh, into football, into soccer terms. It's all like, I suppose it, you could say it's a way of muddling the opposition by giving <coughs> your team code names. So our version would have gone, Who's on the left wing? What's on the right wing? I don't know is centre forward. Thick person. Who's on the left wing? Yes! Anyway, so on, that is, that's on, like the seven pages or so of this twaddle. But done, done, uh, done, done in a slickly and in a certain way. You, you can get them hysterical with it. Um, actually, true. There were, I'll tell you what, there was, no, there weren't really, because there was, uh, there was, there were uh, a couple of Israeli guys who saw it in the fuck the hell bar and they were so impressed with that bit, they had that bit, my, my soccer version of the who's on the first base, translated into Hebrew. And, uh, and, uh, and they had me flown out to Tel Aviv to direct the thing. In, in fact, I, I, I'll, yeah, I'll tell you my bit of Hebrew now. Me bagafesmali, ma bagafemani, ani loya diachalutz makazi. That's who's on the left wing, what's on the right wing. I don't know, it's centre forward. I've got another one as well. Actually, the other one I had first. I'll tell you why, because before I got, I got uh, that drummed into, drummed into the brain, um, I, the reason I had another one was there seemed to be, in those days in Tel Aviv, a lot of Hebrew speakers who didn't know the way, didn't know where they were, and they'd come up to you, you know, with their mats, with their, with their charts, and they'd like, thrust, thrust them to me, though. Why me? Why don't I know the way anyway? Well, you know, it's the, the dome, the dome of the rock. They come in, wait a little bit of that, you know, they're very demanding, like, this sort of thing. And, and I thought, well, it would be nice if you could just say something back to them in Hebrew, you know? Get a shot of them, eh? And, um, and I, was in, I was in a cafe on the, on the, on the, the Diesengoff, on the smart road of Tel Aviv, and, uh, and on the menu, uh, they, they thoughtfully they put laid out for us helpful phrases for the for the visitor in phonetic English. So I um, I put together um, a sort of sort of slightly surreal reply for these events, uh, which was 
Ali Rotsar Lekulef Tapuzim. Excuse me, I wish to peel oranges. And Ali Rotsar Lekulef Tapuzim. And um, so, sometimes I suppose they, 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 they heard my, my English accent would come through, you know, and like, oh, really? What, right away, old boy? Ali Rotsar Lekulef Tapuzim. This guy says, yeah, but you're not a woman. <laughs> no, no, but I said, but uh, this is a land, is it not, in which men may peel oranges? He said, yeah, 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 he said, listen, Annie Rotsar is the feminine form. What you're saying there is, I, a lady, wish to peel oranges. <laughs> Anyway, so I missed the, the lunchtime train by train connection to Munich. And um, it wasn't like it was going to be um, boring, tedious company in Munich. There was going to be, there'd be, there's going to be uh, Marcel Steiner with his smallest theatre in the world. You know, this thing that he, he, he came up with that uh, straps onto a two-seater theatre, straps onto the, the sidecar of a motorbike. There was going to be uh, Sylvester McCoy. Oh, there's going to be Alan Devlin, that Alan Devlin doing his comedy drunk interruptions if he wasn't too pissed. <laughs> some sort of paralysis seemed to have set in, you know? I, I assume, naturally, that it was terminal. The, the, the phrase that came to mind was entropy of the bone marrow. That's what I suppose I got. Entropy of the bone marrow. And that's how come I missed the 11.30pm uh, train boat train connection. And I can recall looking at myself in the mirror and I said, well, you're all hollowed out then, Campbell. It's all gonna crumble with you. And I'm, uh, to get to bed, it seems like the only strength I had was in my elbows, you know? Like, look at the by power of elbow! I was able to get into my bed and I fell into it and fell into a, a stiff sleep. To be roused from it by the telephone ringing, about, half, about, about three o'clock in the morning. And it was Dee Charrington from Toronto. And she wanted to be talking about her father. I said, oh, well, uh, you, you, you mean the captain, Dee? And you know, just saying nice words, the captain, no paralysis, no more. I'd flushed out the entropy from the bone marrow, ready for anything now. <laughs> uh, the captain, yes, Dee. <laughs> and, um, well, I was sad, sad to relate, the captain, her father, had now died. He died in mysterious circumstances in Oman. The body had now been flown back to England. The funeral was to be on the Thursday. Neither she nor her mother could attend it. Could I stand in for them? I said, well, yeah, sure, yes, I'd be pleased to do that for you. In, in that event, could I ring this telephone number, the telephone number of a certain Doris Contardi, it being Doris Contardi who had accompanied the captain's body back from Muscat, oh man. I said, oh, yeah, I said, it's half past three in the morning. Shall, shall I leave it till later? She got a Canadian, Canadian voice now. She said, I'd rather you rang now. I said, okay, yeah, okay, dear, I'll, I'll ring, I'll ring now. <laughs> the captain dead but died in mysterious circumstances in Oman. <laughs> now, and now speaking to a very posh voice, I swear there was a time when very posh people transposed a D for an R. So instead of very, it would be Veddy. Veddy, and not Doris, anyway, but Doddis. Doris Contardi, Doris Contardi, you know, for me, she was an archaeologist lady. And she'd been, uh, she'd been commissioned by the Sultan of Oman to dig up stuff around Muscat. And um, her archaeological site facilitator, uh, known locally wonderfully as Sheikh Fixit, had uh, been uh, Captain Charlie Charrington. 
Uh, no, the ideal for this position sits in you, every shade of every nuance of every dialect of Arabic from Morocco to the Gulf. But there have been, they've been uh, film people over there and um, there have been a, been a party and everybody had wanted the captain to stay. But he'd met an old friend and he'd said, no, there is something I must do. And he'd gone for a walk in the desert with the old friend. Do you know he was on heart tablets? We don't think it was the heart attack which was fatal, but the fall backwards on the rocks. But there was doubt in Doris Contardi's voice as to whether that is what had really happened. She said, will Dee be coming to the funeral? And her mother? I said, no, no, um, uh, they, 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 uh, they, 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 they can't attend. I said, but they've asked me to stand in for them. And then maybe with inspiration, I said, but maybe, um, I said, but maybe, um, uh, um, Dee's, uh, Dee's brother will be coming, uh, Paul. She said, the captain had a son. I said, oh, well, I think he, I think he might have done it. And if he did, his name was uh, Paul. Paul. Anyway, and that went back to Dee Charrington. And I said, Dee, I said, um, I said, this Contardi woman is, is really uh, worried. It's, uh, you know, very upset about the mere existence of Paul. And Dee said, well, Paul's coming. He said, Paul can come to the funeral. Can he stay with you? I said, yeah, for sure he can stay with me. Paul arrives. I said, Paul, I said, how, how, I said, how, how, how well did you know your father? He said, um, he said, I met him on four occasions, he said. I met him once when I was five, once when I was 11, once when I was 15, once when I was 19. I said, when did you first feel the gun? He said, I first felt the gun when I was five. I felt the gun again when I was 11. And when I was 11, I was also shown the uncut gems and pointed to an X, marking the spot of a certain island in the South Pacific. I was also instructed this way, that were our paths ever to happen to meet, I must never call the guy dad or father. The name was to be always Charlie or the captain. Don't know, keep, don't know if you do crosswords, do you? If you do, you'll know that the, uh, the favourite anagram of uh, funeral is real fun. And so it, um, so it turned out with the captains. Well, we had four weeping women round the grave. The proper burial list. Four weeping women round the grave. We had um, Doris Contardi, a chummy lady I call her, called Sammy. And then a Venus in furs, name of Gwendolyn. And the thing was, the captain had been living with the three of them at the same time, but unbeknown to each other. And they all they met round the grave. And um, the Venus in furs, Gwendolyn, she'd had the foresight to bring uh, several, several male shoulders on which she could uh, fall and weep and whatnot. But not so Sammy, not so... Uh, uh, Doris Contardi, the archaeologist, and so it was down to Paul and I to uh, sweep them off to the, 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 to the pub and console them there, leaving behind the fourth lady. We never got to meet her. We never, knew, never found out who she was. The lone and anonymous griever at the graveside. Worth just um, touching on the reading of the will, which had um, a sensational moment. The captain had left his effects variously between uh, Doddis and Sammy and, and the Venus in furs, but with this provisor, that were it a chance that the three of them all snuffed it within six months of the reading of that will, in that event, another envelope must be opened. Yeah, I said, I said, Paul, what a dad, man. God. Hey, what a funeral. Shit. Paul, yeah, yeah, we must keep in touch, absolutely. Bye-bye, and off he was to, went uh, back to Toronto. 
Now, it would only be but a few weeks later, I was in the cinema uh, watching The Exorcist. Now, The Exorcist, and, uh, the Exorcist opens with, a, with an archaeological dig. Northern Iraq, it says, there's a bunch of Arabs digging. Then there's the call to prayer. Then there's a little Arab boy, he's running. That's when you meet Max von Sydow. He, uh, Max von Sydow is the archaeological site facilitator, the Sheikh Fixit, if you like. The little boy is saying to Max von Sydow, in Arabic, we've got subtitles here. They found things, arrowheads, coins, lamps. Max von Sydow now scrabbling around down there. He looks up, this is strange, they're not of the same period. Scrabbling around and around a bit more. Uncovers an appalling object, too appalling for us to look at properly now. Now we're in a cafe, what is it? 20 minutes later, 20 minutes later, Max von Sydow has aged 20 years. He's on heart tablets now. And then we're in a little, we're in a little museum, remember, we're in heavy Arab company. More subtitles, Shatan, something like Shatan, he's going, going subtitled, evil comes from evil. Arab turns to Max von Sydow. We wish you could stay, sir, he says. Max, there is something I must do. And he's off, he's out there, he's going through a marketplace. He's nearly trampled to death by a runaway horse. Now he's driving towards the archaeological site. Yeah, and then there's those Arabs in the, in the flowing white robes and guns. They relax a bit when they see it's Max, and Max goes on to the archaeological site. And that's when we see it, I mean. We'd sort of uh, glimpsed it, maybe a bit before, but not man like this. The dog dragon statue. And there's those, those dogs, wild dogs, fighting themselves to death down there. And then the sun coming up behind the statue. Ooh, statue versus Max. Cut to Georgetown, USA. Now, that line, there is something I must do, is uh, redundant in the script. Redundant, it's confusing. There is something I must do. What did Max von Sydow have to do, actually? What, go to the archaeological site and watch the sun come up behind a statue? Or does this refer to the book? Remember the, you remember the plot of this thing out there? Right, it's about a, it's about a little girl and her, in Georgetown, USA, and her head keeps twiddling around like that. She can't stop spitting green stuff at Vickers. And then, um, you know, and after, after this Northern Iraq prologue, and it's going to be an hour or more before we see Max von Sydow again, and then we remember, oh, there's Max von Sydow, maybe he can stop this twiddling going on with the green stuff. You know, and uh, we, we winkle him out. By this time, he's in Woodstock, USA, writing a book. There is something I must do. I'm just going to watch a statue. Anyway, hell, I was on. I was on the phone, quick to Paul in Toronto. I said, Paul, have you seen the Exorcist? He said, Yeah, mate. He said, I have. He said, Listen, that was the captain's dig. Northern Iraq bollocks. The whole thing was shot in Muscat, oh man. Uh, the captain had been working for the film company as party for the crew and company and the, uh, of the Exorcist, where they'd all wanted the captain to stay. He met the old friend. He said, No, there is something I must do. And he got up into the desert with the old friend and to his death. And that his death had been unspeakably weirder than a heart attack. That Doris Contardi had had to spread a load of money throughout Muscat in order to buy that certificate and be permitted to fly the captain's body back to England. And that line, there is something I must do, is in that film as a mark of respect and love for Captain Charlie Charrington. There is, I would uh, submit, a hole in the plotting of The Exorcist, yeah? Just taking it on its face story value. So how did the um, appalling object get from northern Iraq to the bottom of some stairs in Georgetown, USA? At this point, I'd like to introduce you 
uh, to this to this gentleman here. This is a dog dragon figurine. Uh, note, if you will, the, uh, the sort of the dog dragon snout to the thing, and the sort of uh, wing come cloaky effect uh, there. I mean, I, I, and I dare say that with the with the magic and the expertise and the effects of, uh, of a movie, we could put the breeze up you as effectively with that thing as the one did in The Exorcist. And I can tell you how that got to the bottom of my garden, uh, 96 Haverstock Hill, London, NW3, if you like. <laughs> it was like this. Um, it was 1981, and I was directing a comedy of sorts at uh, the Riverside Studios Hammersmith. Called, it was called War with the Newts. And we'd abandoned the rehearsals, and I was driving... Uh, you know, for the day is what I mean. And I was driving past Olympia, and I saw that on at Olympia was that now was that mind and body exhibition. You know the thing, this new age business. And there'd been some humour there the previous year. I decided to potter in, but right by the exit, I, I was just halted by the last stall, uh, which was a stall of magic wands. And I don't, I don't mean the sort of you know thing that a stage conjurer would use. These were. Um, uh, Earth magic wands for successful magic, individually handcrafted by Dusty Miller. Dusty Miller was there. He was a gentleman with a, a strange uh, twinkle to his eye. And these wands, some of them are very exceptionally weird, you know. And uh, I said, uh, would, uh, would uh, any of these wands be uh, any use in the directing of comedy? <laughs> so, I don't mind. Is it, is it what you do? It's what I'm doing at the moment, yeah. He said, well, more than likely. <laughs> I said, well, uh, could you direct me to a wand that might be suitable for that purpose then? He said, well, no, he said, I can't. He said, because you have to let the wand choose you. <laughs> so I stood there and I, you know, seeing if a wand wanted me. And there was a, there was a, there was a wicked wand there, you know. And I was like, go on, do you want me? Have me, have me. But it sort of was going, no. <laughs> the, one, the, one, the one that was after me, uh, uh, I, I mean, I guess, uh, I guess we've all popped along to the zoo in springtime in order to see a baboon's erection. <laughs> you remember when they, when, they, when they first come upon them, they're, you know, they're sort of pencil thin with a funny wonger on the top. And they, and, and they don't know what they're for. <laughs> I'm like, well, hi, Joe. <laughs> 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 It's not, it's, not, it's not until they get the mauve box that they, uh, they, 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 they get an idea. Listen, shut up. It's, it's, it's not going to be a, a David Attenborough afternoon at all. Uh, all, I'm, all I want to say is that the, um, the wand that had its eye on me, <laughs> this, uh, you know, like a springtime, and I, I said, maybe that one. And, um, and uh, Dusty, when I got it down, he said, yeah, well, he said, maybe, maybe, maybe you'll make a pair, yeah. Uh, now, he said, uh, he said, about these uh, wands, he said, do, tr do try and keep it with you at all times, at least for the first month, till we can find out whether it gets on with you or not. Oh, right. <laughs> anyway, if it didn't get on with me, then he'd give me my five pounds back or exchange it for another one, whatever. Then, okay, fine. The thing, I, I put it under my coat, actually, as I, as I went out. It really seemed the sort of thing you might get arrested for having out in the open. <laughs> and so I, I, I had it under there. And when I wandered out, I bumped into an old chum, a chap called uh, Richard Kilgour. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you're aware, because I was farting around as Mellor at the time, but they played a sort of snorty music. We played again in a bit. Um, a snorty music. Anyway, Richard Kilgore, as it happens, composed and uh, musicalised that. Anyway, this is years before. And the reason Richard Kilgore was there was that he'd, he'd, uh, he'd just parted with um, £250 
to the Silver Mind Control outfit. Uh, now, what they were into was training you into dream mirroring, the dream mirroring technique, what that. And um, anyway, if you uh, devote yourself to that for a bit, you get so that you only have to visualise, you only have to visualise something and you get it. I said, well, they know, 250 pounds. I mean, if it works, it'd be, be all right. No, good, 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 yeah. Uh, I said, um, I said, listen, Richard, uh, Bob Dylan's on around the corner at Earl's Court. Should we go and see Bob Dylan? He said, no. He said, we wouldn't get in. It'll be booked out, won't it? I said, uh, yeah. I said, well, I said, we might get in. I said, I've got a magic wand. <laughs> oh, he said, well, it'd be a chance for me to test out my visualising, wouldn't it? And so we went round to Earl's Court. By the time we got there, obviously, it was going to be a sort of uh, contest of the sorcerers now. And so uh, uh, Richard, Richard went on, uh, on one corner, you see, and, uh, and visualised a couple of tickets for, for Bob Dylan. He was there visualising. And I, I left him to go to the next corner. And I, and I, and I waited until I felt the moment was right. And then I... Two tickets, Bob Dylan! <laughs> this guy goes running up, he got me a couple of tickets. I said, listen, I said, I'll give you an extra fiver if you go and give these tickets to that man over there with his eyes shut. I said, I said, don't, don't, I said, don't say anything to him, though. Um, just sort of thrust them at him. I, 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 I said, come on like a deaf mute, if you like. You know, bad, 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 bad. Like that. Anyway, I, I, he agreed to do this, so I had my back to that event, sort of ineptly waving my wand around, and, uh, like that. And, and uh, Richard, Richard came up to me, and he was shaken. He said, I just got them clearly visualised, he said, and this spastic came up and thrust them at me. And, and not, he said, and not only that, he... Uh, you see, he didn't want, he was only a junior at that time in, in the silver mine control, and so he hadn't wanted to bother the etheric with anything, you know, difficult, he's only humble. So he'd only dared to visualise back row seats. That's exactly what he'd got! <laughs> once, once we were in there, I had the wand out and proud inside there. And, and a chap uh, came, came up to me on the wand, he said, uh, he said, can I see your ticket? I said, certainly. Wow, he said, that's a crappy ticket, come with me. So me and the wand, we went with him, and we sat in the uh, second row. We saw Bob Dylan from the second row. Richard, he had to sit at the back. Ah. Well, that's all he'd visualised. Anyway, <laughs> I thought, I think it likes me. <laughs> and uh, the, next, the next day was Sunday, and I thought, I'll, I think I'll clear out the shed today. I mean, I'd slept with it. And, uh, um, and one, I put the wand on the window ledge of the shed. Just a little garden, this is. Window ledge of the shed. And so I was now uh, taking this stuff out of the shed. And... Uh, I kept passing what I took to be my, my daughter Daisy's upturned chalk boat. I thought, what, what, what chalk boat? She hasn't got a chalk boat. And I thought, yeah, I thought actually, I've never seen a chalk boat. And uh, there was a wee bit embedded in the lawn, so I pringed it up. Ugh. And it was this uh, dog dragon figurine, you know. I, I mean, I, I rationalise it this way, you know, it's sort of... Um, Due to the Exorcist films, eh? <laughs> is that what, what I saw? When, boom, what came into my mind? Exactly. I mean, clear, you know. Clear was the uh, the twinkly-eyed face of Captain Charlie Charrington. Anyway, I put the um, I put the, uh, the the figurine um, on on the window ledge with the wand, and I mean, I sort of said, oh, it is probably um, an exotic chess piece that somebody's lobbed into the garden, and uh, I said, no, that's not a chess piece. And I thought. I think I'd really like to show that to Dusty Miller. It was the last day of the Mind and Body exhibition, so I decided to get along. And I, uh, I went up, I said, Mr. Miller, I said, two tickets for Bob Dylan, that's one thing. 
But what do you make of that? Wow, he said. And he held it professionally. And he said, I don't think it means you any harm, he said. He said, but if I were you, I'd have it checked out by the black magic artifact couple over there. Mm. I said, right. And uh, they, they were actually a hysterical pair. They was what I'd call whoopsie people. Whoop, you know, everything made whoop, whoop, whoops. And they bred enormous snakes and ran this coven every Thursday night. And they wondered if they could whoop, whoops off with it to their, uh, Thursday, um, their Thursday night coven, you know, and then the coven would psychometrize it. We'd be able to find out more about it then. I said, well, yeah, terrific, yeah, cool. And, uh, but the coven uncovered nothing. And so then they whoopsed off to the British Museum with it. The British Museum said, well, we don't know what it is. Maybe it was made in the late, uh, late 1700s or something. We don't know. What, for what purpose? We couldn't tell you. Anyway, meanwhile, Dusty Miller said to me, he said, when you get back home, he said, see if there are any more. He said, sometimes when you find one, you find more. Mm. He said, really? Yeah, I mean, I thought I sort of knew this garden, you know. And I, and, uh, I was back and I was, it was uh, dusk now. And I saw it in a little, a little pyramid of chalky white. And I, I got the, tra the trowel and I dug it up very carefully. And it turned out, is that what you see? And it turned out to be exhibit two, the pair of legs. These are, they're sort of draped legs. So doing that, is it maybe um, legs behind a curtain, possibly? And, uh, and then the next day, I found this one. Um, arguably the the freakiest of the set. This is the the shrieking monk. <clears throat> you know how well you can see that it's got a. He's got a, a loop of wire in the mouth there. Uh, 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 so that hands like that. Uh, 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 it was you saying. I was just yawning. To turn around like this, uh, whoop, I've had this uh, this special box made. So I'm just going to put them back in here. Do uh, in the interval we'll have uh, soon. Do feel free to have a look up here. Don't what go off with stuff. Especially, have a, have, a, have a close look at these. They're very fragile, though, because uh, I will be referring to these uh, later. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, a, production, a production I did called The, uh, the Warp, it was called. Anyway, in this piece, we had, um, we had the services of, a, of an actor, probably in his mid-twenties, called David DeNille. David DeNille was the most minimal person I've ever encountered. Uh, I can recall for you how they would smoke a cigarette. And there would merely be sufficient energy just in those fingers to hold the fag. Any less, the thing would have fallen. The lips, too. Minimal, minimal. And it, it's walk. Was, was that, was it was a minimal alarm to insect life. I think I couldn't have him do too much in the show because uh, he was also totally inaudible. Like, well, no, no, no chance of you speaking up a bit, I suppose, is there, David? No, no, we can't. We can't hear anything. 
But I, I found that. But I found a wonderful use for the chat because um, it turned out he actually had the legendary minus quality, i.e., if he left the room, the stage looked somehow fuller. <laughs> It was a great way of starting scenes off. You'd have David, you know, go, and then go. It's like turning a big light up. Anyway, what I'm going to say is, anyway, so the, so the show is now, uh, is now up and running, and, I, and um, I, I'm now in bed. I was in bed. At home, I mean, and, and, and uh, I'd started to dream. Yeah, I start. I was dreaming. And then this guy barged into my dream. And he said, uh, he said, you know that chap David DeNeal is in your show? I said, yes. He said, well, what he's got to do is this. He's got to go and see every live show that Ken Dodd gives for a year. He said, will you tell him? I said, yeah, all right, yeah. <laughs> and he was gone, you know, I was allowed to, uh, allowed to get, on, get, on with, get on with my dream. You know, we went floating. Oh, the, the, the dream wound up in the South Pacific. And uh, my late mother was roped to a windowsill. And I, and, and I was just cutting her free when this geezer turned up again. He said, you won't forget to tell David, will you? <laughs> just rescuing my mother. <laughs> anyway, so I this dream was, play, was playing in the mind, you know, in a way that I don't think dreams really are meant to. And uh, when I went into the theatre and there was David, he was, uh, he was min minimally making up. No. He was not on for half an hour for his, for his, for his first exit. Ah, <laughs> oh, David. David. I said, listen, I said, I, said I, had a, um, I had a dream about you, you know, last night, David. I said, uh, in fact, I was, I was instructed as to what you're meant to be doing with your future. I said, I, I, I don't know what you think about these things. I said, but it, it seems to me that if you ask me what it was, then you've got to do it. But if you don't ask me, then you'd be in a clear. You wouldn't have to do it. You know? And he said... Um, And he didn't ask me. <laughs> Until we got to the pub. And he said, what is it I've got to do? I said, what you've got to do, David, you've got to go and see every live show that Ken Dodd gives for a year. Thank you, he said. And a little while later, he said, is it all right if I don't start till January? I said, yeah, I'm sure it is. I'm sure that's fine. Yeah. Anyway, so January saw David DeNille taking off for Southport, where uh, Ken Dodd was doing his pantomime there. He'd, he'd not got any money, really, uh, David, and so he borrowed an Arctic sleeping bag, and he slept under Southport Pier for several nights until he made some minimal friends and let him sleep on their floor. He showed the um, box office manageress what little money he'd got, and she gave him a serial ticket so that he could see all the shows. That's twice nightly, three times on a Wednesday, three times on a Saturday. He didn't miss one, and he had a fortnight off, and then Ken Dodd was touring. Uh, got various gigs in the, in the north of England. Uh, David kept up with them all. On the last, after the last one, Ken Dodd held a minimal party on the stage. And David not only had the courage to attend the party, he had the courage to go up and introduce himself to Doddy. And, and he told him, told Doddy what he was doing. That he, was, he was seeing every live show that he gave. And this was uh, down to a dream that a friend of his had had. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> Ken Dodd said, uh, well, he said, David, he said, I think... He said, I think you may have problems with my next engagement. I said, why? He said, because I'm doing a cabaret in the New Hebrides. Ifati. 
And when he said he farty, when Dobbs said he farty, Dave thought, uh, David Daniel thought this was uh, probably some scouse expression, meaning, uh, excuse me, I wish to go and talk to someone else now, you know, something like that. You farty. And, uh, and anyway, he couldn't see what the problem was going to be. The New Hebrides, he got the date of this gig. Presumably, he must uh, apply himself in good time to the relevant Scottish ferry. But then he couldn't find the New Hebrides. Up there, up above Scotland, there's only Hebrides. To find the New Hebrides, you go around here. You've got to turn left at Fiji. Uh, the New Hebrides are just by the Sea of Solomon, and the capital island is Efati Island. David now ran, my expression meaning he would now do anything for money. Right, he got two and a half weeks to go, and he got it. He knocked up sufficient money to get to Efati Island. This means flying by way of Australia. We got our postcard back from David. Apparently Efati Island, smashing place. He, he, he met some very nice Australians. He'd interviewed gentlemen with feathers in their noses. But he'd been to the yacht club, he'd been to the three hotels, he'd been to all the bars, he'd really asked around, and no one had heard of Ken Dodd. But David became a little bit famous on Efati Island as the man looking for Ken Dodd. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the thing was, he knew what he knew all the games, he knew all the routines of Dodd, you see? And uh, anyway, these this little examples went down rather well. Now, the, uh, the language spoken by the natives of the New Hebrides, um, well, actually, each island is 5,000 islands of the New Hebrides, the Solomon Islands, and Papua New Guinea. 5,000, 6,000 languages, actually. But what they call the lingua franca, the linking, the linking language of all the islands, of all that area, and uh, New Guinea, is pidgin, pidgin English. This is like about 1,500 words of quaintly mutated English, uh, but used with cunning. You can actually get it to almost any concept. And it uh, only takes about a week and a half to pick it up. And David was now amusing himself by translating Ken Dodd's routines into pidgin for the entertainment of the, of the natives. Yeah. And there was a bunch of natives who were going to be canoeing off to visit their more primitive cousins on the Solomon Islands. They asked David if he'd like to go with them. Yeah, he would. Anyway, when they, when they arrive on this island... Um, you know, the chaps coming out of their huts, uh, in fact, they had T-shirts on, uh, shorts. They were soon informed that, no, this was to be a special occasion. For this, you were going to have to tog up. As they busied themselves all afternoon, painting their legs up and putting their danglers and their clangers in. And then they sat there all sitting around, and they were introduced to David. David now launched into the first gag of his pigeon dod routine, and the big man chief of the island called for him to halt and to go back and tell it again, and halt and go back and tell it again. He told the gag five times. But on the fifth time of telling, the whole island held its sides and rocked away the night in laughter. Next day he was canoed off to the next island and he toured 19 islands with one gag. <laughs> <laughs> and this, uh, this is it. Uh, 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 right, in... Uh, in full of good day, in full of good day, belong you, me, two fella, push em, little fella, salt water, one eye inside, post office letter hole, belong prayer fella, pasta, tell him, sky island, twinky twink, planty fella, ear. You'll notice that uh, uh, David took a, a liberty with uh, Dodd's text here, the, <laughs> the little fella, salt water, one eye. That's because there aren't actually such things as cucumbers on the islands. I mean, for sure, you might be able to squirm your way through the language to the concept of cucumberishness. But it could take all afternoon, you know? Like, for example, the word there for piano is big fella bocchus. You kill him, immy cry out. Uh, you know, bocchus, you know, they, they reverse their X's there, and bocchus is a box. 
big fella Bokis, you kill him and me cry out. Kill him incidentally is only the word for hit. Uh, to say kill, you've got to say kill him all together, dad, finished, yeah. Uh, so there's a word for kill. Um, and the, oh, yeah, Dodd, uh, Ken Dodd, remember, always entering to love is like a violin. That would come out as love him, like him, little fella Bucky, suppose you scrasm belly, Immy cry out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's why he, um, he, he took the easy way out. Little fella, soul water, one eye. Uh, little fellow salt water one eye. That's uh, not such a little fellow, actually. Little fellow salt water one eye. This here refers to the Solomon Island sea slug. You might encounter one while paddling out there. If you do, pull it out. It's a dirty great brown thing with a luminous green streak up it. Sling it quick onto the beach and then it'll dry out there and then you can powder it up and you can use it as a, a fishy pepper to sprinkle on your yams. <laughs> is, is, is this all clear now? It's actually uh, traditionally in, in his routine would normally come after what a, be, um, what a beautiful day to what a beautiful day to run into Woolworths and shout Tesco's what a beautiful day to put your kilt on upside down <laughs> put your kilt on upside down stand on your head and shout how's that for a shuttlecock in full, in full of good day what a, in full of good day you see what a beautiful day in full of good day in full of good day belong belonging to in full of good day belonging to you me too fella you, me, too, fella. Just means we, see? In front of a day, in front of a day, belong you, me, too, fella. Push them. Little fella, soul water, one eye. Inside, or into, inside, post office, letter hole. Long belonging to, prayer fella, pastor. Prayer fella, pastor. Prayer fella, pastor. The vicar, that Reverend Macaroni. Prayer fella, pastor. Tell him, tell him, Sky Island, Twinkie Twink, plenty fella, ear. <clears throat> The Martians have arrived. <laughs> David, David, David didn't stop there. Um, he, uh, he's also down in the Solomon Island books as the, uh, as the gentleman who introduced limerick form to the islands. Uh, this this uh, generally agreed to be one of his best. Um, Run'em, run'em fella flying fuckis. Bold, different, ah, big, no mockis. One bowl, small, no, no, no bowl. Narrow fella, big fella, winning prize, bockis. Uh, that's pretty fun. Run'em fella, run'em, run'em, the run'em fella is a, is a hunter. A run'em fella, there is a spear. Run'em fella, flying fuckis, flying fuckis, anyone? Flying fox, very good, yeah. If a, if a box is a box, a fox is a fox. Run and fella, flying foxes. Bowl, they don't bother with S's for plurals on the Solomon Islands. You know it by context, I'll help you with this one. Not bowl, but bowls, or bulls, bulls, different. Bulls, different, harbig. Harbig, harbig, harbig is just the word for sizes. Bulls, different, harbig. No mockets, like forget, no mockets, no laughter, please. Run and fella, flying foxes, bulls, different, harbig, no mockets. One bull, sm one bull small, no, no, almost. Almost noble. <laughs> narrow fella, the other one, narrow fella, big fella. Winning prize, Bokis. Uh, it's the same. It's the same prize, I believe, year after year on the Solomon Islands, where they put a, a lot of attention into the, you know, the ornate wicker boxes uh, there. The, um, the English equivalent uh, he's thinking of there, I would say, is whatever it was, an ecclesiastical gentleman of some sort from devises, whose balls were of different sizes. One ball was small, almost no ball at all, but the other was large and won prizes. <laughs> uh, frankly, frankly, I would say the more enchanting in, in David's pigeon version. We, we learn all this, of course, when David at length uh, returns from his Solomon Island adventure. 
But his, uh, his greeting is strange. There's no shaking of hands, embracing, any of that sort of thing with him now. What he does is he, he sort of grabs you by the upper arm like that. Yeah, and sinks in a bit. Boom. Well, well, this evidently is a Solomon Island greeting, you know? It's a throwback to their, their fine old cannibal days. Did you know this? They were eating each other on a regular basis up until 1935 and later. And this is the most tastiest part of a person. So this means, yeah, I quite like you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but he told us by the time he left there, you know, like, um, Ken Dodd's styling himself the Squire of Naughty Ash. Uh, David is calling himself the Chief, that's Chief, you see. The big, the big man Chief Blong Fokwar Ilan. Um, Ilan being Island. The big man Chief, the Squire if you like. The big man Chief of Fokwar. Fokwar, see the influence of Irish on Pigeon there. Fokwar. Fokwar is barbed wire. Right there, so there you are. The, the Squire of Barbed Wire Island. Rather terrific. Oh, yeah, and here, a little bit of warning. In case you get moved to go out there, beware of that word. Handbag. Handbag is, uh, don't, it's, don't ever say it. It's, it's the rudest word on the Solomon Islands, handbag. <laughs> and, uh, it has a sort of shifting meaning. It means something like um, criminal carnal knowledge of a young woman to whose father you haven't given six pigs. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, David was telling me that um, the, the tale, apparently the British Council had funded uh, Dame Edith Evans to tour around the islands with her one-woman show. And when, when she turned uh, up to that, her importance of being earnest uh, contribution, uh, she'd had to canoe for it. Pigs, they measure everything uh, by pigs out there. Uh, the, uh, pig, like, like if, you, if you say, um, how long will it take to drive there? I say, oh, six pigs. What? It's like you're liable to run over six pigs before you, before you get there, you know? Um, you know like if you're walking, you're like, well, it's about three pigs. With three pigs, what does that mean? Well, you, you pass through about three tribes and it's best to give the bloke a pig. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you, you know, they say, can you, can you say, can I go through here? They say, yeah, fine, you can go through here. Yeah, and then someone comes up and says, um, the chief says, have you got a pig? Well, it's, it's when you say no that you find yourself in a pot, you see. <laughs> and you always have a pig. Always have a pig with you. And you get this interesting in these, um, in the, the, these brush, I'm quite into this stuff now, brush up your pigeon here. You get useful phrases like this. Uh, what for you loosing pig belong me long cupboard? Yeah, meaning, uh, why did you let my pig out of the cupboard? <laughs> Further. I'll pick out kind of further insights into the place here. Words you might need in the Solomon Islands, yeah? You might need to know the word nambus, perhaps, yeah? Um, a nambus is a penis wrapper. <laughs> a nambus, yeah. They are, they are not, not really at all what you might be thinking. They're a sort of wicker effort. Uh, exactly. anyway, I want to tell you about David, actually, when he returned with all this information. He was no longer minimal. And, and this dated from his falling in love on the islands. Now listen, it's not, only, uh, it's not only feathers that they put in their noses out there. They put all sorts of stuff in. You know, like um, pencils and cigarettes and cigars. And there was, um, there was uh, some woman, a priestess of the John from Cargo cult that he'd encountered on Tanner Island. And she'd so worked on her nasal cartilage that she was able to snap it over 
know, things like like soup tins and and, 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 and harpic containers. Uh, and, like that. Ding, ding. and she used to, she could play. You could, she was sort of quite musical. She'd make a good combo with a, with a bishop. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. <laughs> snap. Anyway, the, the, David, David had a bit of a turmoil. Was he really? In, was he really in love with her? Was he really in love with her? Or was he merely in love with the idea of introducing her to his mother? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, anyway, so but then uh, he gives me this invoice, probably made out to me, for £3,000, you know, billing me for £3,000. I said, hey, well, actually, what's this then, David? He said, well, look, he said, I didn't fulfil uh, your commission exactly as voiced, i.e. I didn't see every live show that Ken Dodd gave for a year. He said, but bringing all this stuff back? He said, uh, isn't this opening some doors for you? Well, possibly I said, David, but I said, I said, listen, there's no sense in which I commissioned you to do anything. I said, I merely had the goodness to tell you what some geezer who barged into my dream told me to tell you. <laughs> yeah, he said. And he was sort of going around my place, you know, picking up stuff. Um, not like he was looking for clothes, though. <laughs> it was like he had all the evidence he required, really. It was clear that he had plans of returning to the islands, you know. Uh, and he was going to, going to offer himself for the uh, for the hundred days circumcision ritual out there, and then having got out of that, he would knit himself some wicker nambus, and uh, and then uh, you know he would qualify. He'd be just six pigs away from uh, marrying the harpic lady. I mean, she was there was much more to her than, than merely somewhere to stick your harpic container. She was a caring, loving woman, and, and his first six pigs. Anyway, as as he was uh, as he was leaving, he turned to me and he said, um, "Okay," he said, "so carry on up your own arsehole. And he went. I thought, "Oh wow, that's a big guy just gone out of my house." And I really, I really experienced envy. You know, I envied him his journey. How far he got, what he might do next. Ken Campbell, The Seekers Podcast, was produced and presented by Daisy Campbell and David Bramwell, with kind permission from the Ken Campbell Estate. Music was by Horton Jupiter. It was funded by Arts Council England. The disembodied voice of Ken was Jeremy Stockwell.